Do you think it's safe to ask them? Hear me. All you hosts gathered here. Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Well, I think we're about ready. Quiet, everyone. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. From the whispers of the damned, deep within the bowels of hell, welcome to Astro Radio Z. Welcome to another episode of Astro Radio Z. This episode, we're going to be talking to director Michael Keane, who made The Head, 
one of my favorite shot on video horror comedies of recent memory. If you're into super out there flicks like Frank Henenlotter's movies, John Waters, or David Pryor's Sledgehammer, you'll find a lot to enjoy in this depraved little slice of demented madness. We'll also talk about his love of genre film, how he happened to make a Neil Breen send-up movie called Fatal Future, and more after this short break. So stick around. This is Astro Radio Z and we love talking about movies with you. If you are looking for more episodes and want to become part of the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z and become a monthly subscriber to have access to not only over 100 plus bonus episodes of content, but a monthly bonus episode of Astro Radio Z and censored with Mark the Movie Man where you, the listener tell us what to cover on the show. Jump in. Make Astro Radio Z yours and become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z. Hi, I'm Daniel. This is the Bottom Rack. Bottom shelf entertainment for your top shelf lifestyle. Maybe I should have said that a little. What the show for entertainment? We are toughest show for lifestyle. Sorry, I was ignorant. <laughs> anyway, how you doing? <clears throat> Friends of mine would know by this point, and anybody. I mean, really, it's, is it that much of a surprise? I like a good ninja flick. I mean, you know who doesn't. Okay, but like seriously, I love a ninja flick. I love a good ninja flick. And those are so hard to come by. Like seriously, you would think it would be tailor made, ready to go. But, and maybe I'm just jaded. Maybe my palate has been spoiled. What with the likes of Ninja Gaiden, you know, growing up, getting my ass handed to me by uh, Ninja Gaiden, Ninja Gaiden 2, Ninja Gaiden 3. Oh, yeah, I beat those, by the way. Did I tell y'all that? I tell everybody that. It's like we could play a game like Spot the Vegan. You know, how do you find the vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Trust me. <laughs> how do you find the person that beat Ninja Gaiden? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> long history of loving. Ninja stuff. It just, it is what it is. You know, as a kid on the playground at school, you got ninjas. And I never really was much for like the Cowboys. I love Westerns, but it was always, you know, ninjas, bad dudes. And American Ninja was the shit. And like, yeah. Anyway, I watched Ninja Apocalypse. I'd never heard of this thing. Uh, and I forget where, I forget how I stumbled upon this one. Uh, it's apparent this <laughs> this was a bottom shelf uh, offering here. Now, this was through Amazon Prime, and it is on Amazon Prime. It's Ninja Apocalypse, came out in 2014, directed by Lloyd Lee Barnett. And let's see, it stars Christian Oliver, Les Brent, and it, uh, that really cool dude, Kerry Hideyuki Tagawa, uh, he, Shang Tsung, or he, he's like, you've been in everything. But uh, if there's a Japanese part, chances are he's played it. If it's a Japanese part that requires somebody like Suave, it's this dude. He's like the Michael Ironside for uh, the Asian Actors Guild. It just it is what it is. Do not make him come to you. Like you will always go to him because if he comes to you, you're dead. Now he's not like the other dude. What's his name? Tony Long? No, I forgot his name. He's the long, he's just that guy. And you'll know him because he's in every movie. He's always a henchman and he always kills everybody. See, like, he's more action oriented. 
Kerry Tagawa is, like I said, he's the Asian Michael Ironside. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Ninja Apocalypse. This thing, I'm trying to think of where to begin. This movie was badass. Like, it was so cool. And it was a nice, pleasant surprise. It's low budget, so back off. But I'll, I'll get it's just it was really there was a lot to like in this flick. And I'm trying to think of a good way to get there. If you want a ninja flick and like seriously, all you need to do is hear me say, hey, watch this ninja flick, then you're going to enjoy this. If you need a little bit more explanation, then just sit on right back. And let me tell you why you should watch this ninja flick. <clears throat> ninja Apocalypse came out in 2014. And if, if I can find a good synopsis here. This one was actually, all right, here's the first little synopsis thing. This is what you're going to find on IMDb. If one of these days I'm going to remember to look on Google before I turn on the damn recorder. Anyway, <clears throat> let's see if I can start. A, all right, here we go. Let's start this. Framed for assassinating the Grandmaster, a lost ninja clan must, but you know what? This is not working. Let's find something good. All right, let's get something pepped up and talking. Or pepped up. Let's, uh, all right, let's try this again. <clears throat> Framed for assassinating the Grandmaster, the Rust Ninja Cran must batter their way up an underground nuclear bunker filled with horde of supernatural enemy, mutants, and fresh-eating zombies. Trapped 200 feet below the Earth's crust, these ninja will face hell. Yeah, that was stupid. <laughs> Let me think of something about... Ooh, I know. All right, we got to make this one look. So let's kick up the good music because this is about action. So um, please. All right, that'll work. <laughs> so we got this. Let's try this now. Framed for assassinating the Grandmaster, the Lost Ninja Clan must battle their way up an underground nuclear bunker filled with hordes of supernatural enemies, mutants, and flesh-eating zombies. Trapped 200 feet below the Earth's crust, these ninja will face hell. I mean, it's <laughs> essentially, all right, let's think if I could get a good way to give you this. All right. It's, a po it's called Ninja Apocalypse. So I was going to say it's a post-apocalyptic ninja film. It's the beauty of the title. It, there are cool things in this flick. There is this is after some sort of earth-shattering apocalypse. If you Marvin Martian, an earth-shattering kaboom. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Society is done, and there are just these clans living like tribes, but there are tribes of ninja or martial artists. So it's got a very, very. Um, God crap, why can't a feudal Japan feel to it, even though it's in like the future, like an apocalypse thing? It just it's like Mad Max meets feudal Japan. There's no vehicles or nothing. It's all, you know, the sword and sorcery type stuff. But oh Lord, I'm trying to think anyway, all the clans have been called together by like the highfalutin mucky muck to like for the peace accord. And so you have this one lost clan who is ridiculed for whatever reason. I won't get into that, why it's the lost clan or whatever, but the they are summoned also. And there's rivalry. 
between the clans and everybody looks down on the lost clan and stuff so they all gather and they have to go to this you know nuclear bunker as you said and it's like they take this elevator down through this compound to go to this meeting place and um they are like for this meeting that the grand high mucky muck who is carrie tagawa has summoned everybody there well then he's murdered now this is no spoiler because this happens like within the first 10 minutes he's murdered and the lost clan is blamed for it so now the lost clan has to try to escape while also finding out who murdered the grandmaster and so it's basically like die hard mixed with judge mixed with dread you remember the movie dread badass movie by the way carl urban all right think of the raid or die hard mixed with dread and instead of guns and stuff it's like these warrior monks who have to run around fight a bunch of ninja I know it's it sounds so stupid. Well, I guess it, it might sound so. Just trust me. They have like magic and shit that they use, and it's just so. There are so many things going on in this film, and they don't explain it. And that's why I'm having a hard time trying to describe what's happening. But I love I love movies like this. There's so much story, and they don't tell you, and they're not going to. Unfortunately, it, it, you just you watch the movie and you fill in the blanks for like the background the scenery why the towns look the way they do things that are happening in the background and then why does everybody have magic powers and stuff i mean you've got snake men you've got the sirens who can clone themselves poison darts and let's just not you got ninja henchmen like dudes just run around straight up like when they say get them and they're running after him to fight them and they're ninja it's got CGI blood mixed with real blood. So I know some people are like, hey, stupid CGI blood. Look, it's budgetary constraints, but I will give it this. It does it like that 300 sequel. You remember 300 Rise of Nations or Rise of a Nation or whatever it is? Like, anyway, they'll hack him with a sword and it might be a CGI spray and then real blood gets splattered on the wall in cool, stylish ninja fashion. It just, it's so cool. It The way that the the main characters are dressed they're kind of dressed like the uh your normal characters if you've ever played jade empire they're dressed more like your farming monk like your village monk they're they're not the ninja the ninja are actually like the towers enforcers and stuff who are anyway long story short this movie was so cool and let me tell you about the the cover art for this thing because i'm getting so excited talking about it so it's called ninja apocalypse and here's what got me first of all the title attracted me i mean ninja apocalypse that sounds good to me so on the cover you've got in ninja font ninja and then under apocalypse and then you've got a sun like a setting sun and just standing there in the foreground is a ninja staring at the camera he's got his katana it's upraised blade angled down and just under that it says it has begun and it also says august 5th so i guess that's when the movie came out but regardless i mean <laughs> does this movie deliver what's on the cover well yes you see a setting sun and you also see ninja a bunch of them there's a lot of martial arts fighting there are no like people die but really nothing is that uh i'm trying to think of what nothing is that stereotypical and nothing is really that predictable some of it kind of is but not really it's got zombies that might have actually been about the weakest part to me the setup for it and when they go there and stuff is cool it's just kind of what they do with it <laughs> ernie reyes jr is in this thing I, I, it might be ernie reyes jr doesn't matter he's in here wow it, he's grown up like a lot he's gotten old 
<laughs> anyway, he's in this movie. Ninja, post-apocalypse, zombies, magic, blood sprays, hour and 24 minutes. Seriously, dude. I mean, it plays... This thing, I say this a lot for movies, but it's so notable and noteworthy when I do find them. This thing plays out like a video game. It is so cool. Like I said, it's Die Hard mixed with Dread in feudal Japan, in a post-apocalyptic feudal Japan type thing again you just you'd have to watch it but it's got payoff man there there's a good payoff there's a cool story i mean i'll admit it's not the most original story but i mean what is nowadays you kind of know what's happening as soon as it goes on but it's like figuring out how it happened it's like oh oh so again it's worth watching lots of fighting lots of blood pretty gory and i mean it just seriously you've done a lot worse don't Pay attention to the IMDb rate. Like this thing's got like three point one stars out of ten, or whatever. Maybe don't even read the Amazon reviews and stuff. This it's an indie film. The camera work is good. I mean, seriously, what's lacking for this is probably some of the acting. You might would say, and there's so much story in it that this is hard for them to actually make a film. Like seriously, to write this into film this thing needs to be a comic book this thing i really this thing needs to be a video game this thing needs to be like ninja gaiden six that's part six let's see there's ninja gaiden one two and three and then ninja gaiden sigma one two and three so this needs to be like ninja gaiden seven and yeah <laughs> Whew, that sucked um <laughs> my battery gave out on me bummer to um, having to go back to by this point you've probably gathered i really enjoyed this movie <laughs> i mean i'm just at this point rambling on i would probably do something to embarrass myself whatever it just is ninja apocalypse this thing was freaking cool carrie tagawa at the beginning of it does some cool shit like with a sword and magic it immediately sets up what this flick is about the cover art i mean it's simple and yet you get exactly what the cover art shows you you want a ninja you're going to find a bunch of them in this movie there's going to be some stylish killing it's going to be pretty cool it ain't the greatest film it, you've done a lot worse it's actually really cool there's some polish to it i like it i wish there was more like i said this thing needs to be a video game it needs to be a comic book it needs to be some, i'm happy we got the movie i would like to see the the writer of this move on to something else i'd like to see more uh, in this theme, because I mean, it just really it, it's like Mad Max meets Jade Empire with putting Die Hard with Dread. You know, it's a nice little melting pot of stuff. So anyway, I am Daniel and you can't see me because I am a ninja, in fact. And so this has all just been transmitted to you through my ninja magic. Through Gin Sai Ro or whatever the hell the dude said from American Ninja. Damn, I need to go back and do my lessons again. You can't see me, but I'm doing my finger shit using my ninja magic, Kodudera. Aha! Kobudera. Ninja magic. <laughs> and it's like, well, you can't even say it normally. It's like, you're like, Kobudera. You can't do that. After you watch Ninja uh, American Ninja, you know, it's like, Kobudera. Ninja magic. You start talking like Mako or, you know, wanting to be. I forget the dude's name from American Ninja, but, you know, so you end up shouting like the guy for powerful wizard using Kobodera that ends up turning into Yoda and at this point I am just <laughs> thanks for listening <laughs> really is Ninja Apocalypse have fun <laughs> and if you're still my friend or anything I'll holler at y'all later <laughs> bye <laughs>
Jesus Christ. Cheeseburger, extra mayo, no pickles for me, and a bowl of your best calf's blood for my lady. 
What was the movie when you were young that kind of locked you into loving fringe cinema? When I was, my, my mom was a nurse and she was always working. Um, she was a single mother. Uh, I think I've met my actual father like once when I was six. That's like, that's, so I was um, basically all alone all the time. We were super poor. And so my kind of parent for the most part was the television and more specifically, whatever she could pick up from the rental store to to keep me satiated. And sometimes, you know, it would be stuff that I, I still don't know what it is. There's a movie that uh, I did find eventually uh, the name, but I could not find a copy. And I keep forgetting what it's called. But um, it's like Alien something Avenger or, or what have you. And I was uh, I, I was under the age of eight years old. I don't I can't remember what year exactly, but I was at most eight years old. And I remember very vividly, uh, it starts off with like these aliens or something. And there's a bunch of like Uzi, like that really shitty 80 Uzi fire. (laughs) Um, and people like with giant squibs going off, um, getting blown apart. And then these aliens or whatever they were take over a bunch of human bodies, uh, in town. And then one of them, I guess, becomes friends with a hooker. And then, (laughs) She or the hooker, I could be wrong because, again, this is, you know, back in those days where everything meshes together. Yeah. Uh, They go up to her like some loft or whatever, and she takes her shirt off and them titties just pop on out. And I turned it off because I shouldn't be watching nudity in film. Uh, That's that's kind of (laughs) that's that's how my mind worked when I was younger. And a lot of that came from what my mom did let me watch. So like I had the VHS and this is again before the age of eight at the very least. Uh, I think most of this is around the age of like six. Mm. Uh, I had RoboCop on VHS. That was my most watched VHS tape. And it's still my favorite movie of all time. And anytime my mother asks me, Michael, why do you make these movies you make? Michael, why do you make these jokes you make? I say, well, you know, maybe if you didn't show me RoboCop at the age of six, Ma. <laughs> I have a very yeah. similar story, but <laughs> please continue. <laughs> I think those of us that, that grew up loving fringe cinema kind of have a similar story where you had, Probably, a, yeah. you had a parent or parents that were, had very lax views upon the accessibility of the content you were allowed to watch, or at least were open to discussing it with you. Did you did you find your mom being that person for you that she just kind of was just like, well, I think you're, you know, smart enough to be able to handle this kind of stuff or she just left you to do devices? I think she I think she just left me to do my device because she uh, I, I have several very specific memories. One is I was watching Gremlins on TV and she forced me to turn it off. She wanted me to turn off that that trash or whatever. Uh, and I think it was like when they're like in the alleyway behind the movie theater, maybe. Uh-huh. Um, and she saw the gremlins and that was enough for like, nope, can't watch that. And yet the like that whole uh, alien whatever story. The only reason I had that movie was because we rented it and it, we were at the, the video store 
and I saw Alien, and I'd already seen Alien. Yeah. I saw Aliens. I'd already seen Aliens. I think I actually owned one or both. I think I, I might have only owned Aliens. Um, and I saw the cover for Alien 3, and I thought, you know, I don't like bald women. So <laughs> <laughs> I went uh, over one, and there was this other movie with the with the word Alien in the title. And I'm a stupid little kid. I don't know the dev. I think they're sure. all just the same franchise. Yeah. And so I picked that one, and uh, and so then that that movie, the like those like little memories, which are probably completely different in the actual film, have stuck with me throughout my entire life, um, which makes me really concerned as a parent. <laughs> To a small child, like I'm like, oh god, what is, what am I going to do or say or show this kid that's going to stick with him forever? <laughs> um, but I really like I didn't watch too much fringe, like actual fringe cinema, uh, until I was probably in middle or high school, mm-hmm. uh, and at that point, uh, I did start watching Troma. Of course, they were you know putting out these amazing DVDs like right. the Toxic Avenger DVD the um, Cannibal the Musical DVD those are those are the two that I bought the first I think I think Cannibal was the first one I ever bought but I I could be mistaken and um those like changed my outlook on on movies because of course you know be, being raised on these um R-rated Hollywood flicks from the 80s you know that gives a certain perspective and I think definitely uh, push me in a certain direction. But then once I got into these like low to no budget, um, just wacko movies, uh, it, it, it just clicked in my, in my noggin. And, you know, I, I wish I could say that I, out of all, like, cause I, I, I collect vinegar syndrome releases and I collect all these little cult movies. And I wish I could say that most of them I watched as a child, but I really didn't. It mostly was me exploring cinema, uh, in middle and high school. And then, and even then I was not entirely in that cult range until college. And I think that trying to make movies kind of, it flicked a switch in my head. And even when I go back to like, uh, went to look at my review of SS girls on YouTube Mm -hmm. and I couldn't watch it because I was like, Oh, it's so weird. And now I'm like, SS girls is kind of weird, I guess. Oh, the the SS girls and SS love camp. Oh my God. Those movies are rough. Are you, are you a Nazi exploitation fan? Uh, I, I, I enjoy what I would quote unquote good Nazi exploitation. So it just depends. I, I guess I'm not a fan because I don't like rapidly seek it out. Um, but it, I think when you present Nazi exploitation and it is like the dial is turned to 11 and it's just all these whacked out characters and it just gets weird and it yeah. like moves further away from reality. Yeah, I think it's really good. Like I think because SS, SS Girls is basically just we're going to create a bordello uh, Nazi bordello and that's going to win the war. And, you know, that that. <laughs> I don't remember what their plan was in SS Girls, but like that's kind of how it feels. And then if it's something like, you know, we're in this concentration camp and we're going to experiment on Jews. okay, I'm less intrigued by that. I I care less about that sort of thing. Um, Are you going to turn the Jews into werewolves that? okay? that might. Now we're talking. Yeah. Now now we're talking. It's hard to as an exploitation fan to really like recommend Nazi exploitation, especially stuff as much as I love. Ilsa harem keeper of the oil sheiks. And as much as I grew up with the VHS tape of Ilsa, she wolf of the SS. I have to admit it was mostly because of Diane Thorne's boobs. It wasn't because (laughs) of the torture of the Jewish people that were involved in it. 
Uh, so it's, it, it, it is problematic. And that's just when you get into stuff like the trauma, like you were talking about the, the super no budget uh, underground films where the sensibility is completely different. They aren't beholden to as um, most mainstream movies are financiers uh, that maybe have a moral uh, stance that they don't want to be broken. So to to me, and I don't know how it is to you, a lot of the appeal towards that kind of cinema, um, the underground stuff was because it was a little dangerous. It went places that normally most people in most films like you were talking about, they just don't go. So did you find more of a voice in that as opposed to the mainstream stuff? Or was it just because it the energy was a little different? I think, I mean, I think that there is that, yeah, there is that dangerous appeal. I, I think having been raised on, on movies that a lot of people, their parents would never show them, uh, it changed my perspective of what a good movie is just to start off with. Um, yeah. and I, I love all cinema. Like I, I just love movies period. And I, I hate talking bad about movies. Um, I, I just finished a video on vice Academy, um, oh, which boy. I, could not fucking stand and it was one of the hardest videos to make because it was just me shitting on <laughs> these three films uh, anytime i find a movie that pushes buttons or like makes me a little not necessarily uncomfortable but like moves one step past a boundary i thought i had yeah um like in the mood for love was a movie where i was like oh like a nice classy uh japanese movie cool 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 and then i'm watching like holy shit this is crazy <laughs> yeah uh so like stuff like that really uh, appeals to me, um, and I think that's just basic human nature. Uh, but then when I finally actually made movies and then made an actual feature, I mean, I made several shorts um, in college. I made the most pretentious piece of shit you could ever possibly imagine, and no one will ever see it. Um, after making actual you know movies, it changes how you look at other films, and so. Like when I, you know, when I watched Vice Academy um, and then I listened to the commentaries as, as part of my review, uh, I, I appreciated the hustle. I appreciated, mm -hmm. you know, how, what they did to like steal certain locations, how they made certain places look like, like a police station or what have you. Um, I, I really appreciated how he, how Rick Sloan always uses this very bright neon saturated lighting to up the production quality and make it a slightly prettier film to look at mm -hmm. um you know and and those things appeal to me and so where some people might say you know oh those movies have no redeeming value i have i found very few movies have no redeeming value and so by having that perspective and always being able to find something good in basically every movie i'm able to enjoy the little things more and because the little things often explore topics or concepts that I am not used to. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I think the, the pleasure comes in is I, I just like exploring uh, new ideas. Um, and you know, I still enjoy your standard issue slasher flick, no doubt about it. But I mean, you can kind of tell by the head. I, I like things that go a little bit of a different direction than, than most. And I still enjoy, you know, your, your Marvel movies and what have you. But at the end of the day, I would much rather be watching something about uh, a, a Nazi bordello because <laughs> uh, it's just so like, sure, OK, that's haven't seen that before. So let's try it out. <laughs> right. 
cinema is supposed to be about escapism. It's supposed to be about taking you someplace that you've never been. To me, the most exciting kind of film is something that I've just never seen before. I have always been a huge supporter of shot on video horror films. When you were starting to discover shot on video films, what broke that barrier for you to look at them and feel that they were just movies as opposed to lesser than? Was it you becoming a filmmaker yourself or did you just naturally get into the the hustle and the maybe the story and energy that some of these shot on video films were present to you? I mean, I, I shot on a lot on some uh, old formats when I was much younger and I always wanted like I remember specifically I think everybody at least in. Not everybody. I feel like I feel like a lot of people at some point ha- got their hands on a VHS camcorder in the 90s when they were uh, or 80s when they were kids and uh, thought, OK, we're going to make a movie. because we have a camera now. Um, and I think that always stayed with me. And I guess having made my, my first like um, proper, like finished movie, um, which was a piece of shit, uh, <laughs> was shot on a uh, the first or one of the first mirrorless cameras. It was when mirrorless was still like a, 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 a an experiment. And no one was sure it was going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the Panasonic GH1, I guess, uh, which obviously far cry from the the video days. You know, I made a I made a movie that looked fine on it, and I had seen some movies like Feeders that certainly didn't look fine, but were were fun in their own special way. Yeah. And I think that just by experimenting with non-professional means that kind of got me on the path to more appreciating these lower end films. And then there's also just having watched so many movies on VHS growing up. Obviously, they still, you know, they looked better uh, for the most part than actual shot on VHS. But but there's still that that um, that little barrier between an actual film print or a DVD or Blu-ray and a VHS tape, especially oh, yeah. an old VHS tape that's been, you know, put through the the ringer a few t- times. Um, and so I, I've never really looked at a shot on VHS movie and said, well, that just looks like garbage. I don't want to watch this. I've always just seen it as, well, that was just shot on a, a VHS tape or that was shot on, you know, whatever um, format from that era. And uh, I don't know. I just I've never really been t- too dismissive of shot on VHS. I was a little dismissive of shot on digital when it first started because mm-hmm. um, I was in film school around the time that was becoming that was uh, I remember Public Enemies coming out. Uh, Michael Mann's Public Enemies. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was one of those assholes because um, I was in college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's that's nothing compared to film. And now here we are and it all looks the same. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept my lashings on that one. I was wrong uh, as most teenagers are. And I never had like a specific moment that, you know, defined my appreciation and acceptance of shot on VHS. Possibly in Michigan is still like my favorite shot on video thing, but it wow. was not my first. Oh, gosh, I really don't know what my first, it might, it might be feeders. But I, I don't I wasn't I didn't appreciate I wasn't like, fuck, yeah, that's a goddamn movie. <laughs> it was more like, well, that was weird. I think that that could be said for most of Polonia Brothers movies. Yeah. yeah. Bless them. Yeah, I think might have been Blood Cult. That might have been my first. I mean, not shot on VHS, obviously, but shot on video. Sure. Yep. Um, 
it might have been blood cult. It's it's hard. I always uh, me and time are not particularly good friends. You know, there was there was a period where I realized that I enjoyed shot on VHS, shot on video, and um, I just went all out and started finding all of them and and watching them. And that's kind of what eventually turned into me making the head. I actually had the idea for the head before I had ever really consciously gotten into shot on video. And, and when I decided I really want to shoot something on VHS, um, it was the one idea that I, where I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. the one I should do. Yeah. Um, and I think I was right overall. Um, you know, not from a financial standpoint, but I was certainly <laughs> artistically speaking. Right. I don't I don't think any movie when you're going to set out to make a, a no budget movie from a financial standpoint turns out the quote, quite the way you want it to. You are listening to Astro Radio Z. MC Dalton, the one and only. You're the best hacker in the whole of the grids. You walk between worlds, undefeatable. Till now, that is. You think you can stop me? I have broken out of metal chains. I have beaten men twice my size in one-on-one combat and hacked into the brain stems of terrorists. I have the power to end life with a single keystroke and to topple world governments with the mention of a line of code. I am a virtual god. Let's go back a little bit and let's talk about your first movie. Um, as a Las Vegas resident, did you feel obligated <laughs> to make a Neil Breen send up? Like you were the only one with the correct geographic perspective to be able to speak accurately the language of Neil Breen cinema. The, the origin of Fatal Future was Sean Doyle, who co-directed the film with me under the name Mitch Keen, which is still a giant mistake. And I regret using that name. But anyway, I think he had come back and he had like had a bad day at work or something. And he was living with me at the time. And uh, we sat down and watched, I think, Fateful Findings. Uh, and we followed that up this, I think, the same night with with Double Down. Um, but we we watched it, 
just because it was on Amazon at the time yeah. and we were curious and we watched this movie and it was supposed to just be, we're going to watch a dumb movie and laugh and that'll, that'll just make the, the night better. And, uh, it, it turned into a fucking reverential experience <laughs> And the thing that really helped was, oh, fuck. And this guy lives in Las Vegas. Yeah. That's amazing. And then by the time we were done with with Double Down, we knew we had to try to make a movie like Neil Breen because a big part of it is they're all set in and around Vegas. We have that going for us. And we were both, you know, aspiring filmmakers. Uh, I had started and failed many, many projects before then. And you know, we said, fuck it, let's do it because we we don't need any money. That was the main crux was in order to replicate the general idea of a Neil Breen movie, we don't need any cash. Well, it's mostly stock footage. Uh, it, it, yeah, which is, you know, it's real quick, something that's really frustrating. There's a, a lot of negative negative reviews for Fatal Future, but one of them mentions that it's mostly stock footage. And most of the footage that's in that movie we shot, there is mm-hmm. actually not a lot of stock footage really? in the film. Yeah, like all the drone shots, those are, unless I'm forgetting one, those are all us. We literally borrowed a drone from a friend and my wife piloted it 90% of the time. Um, (laughs) And you can kind of tell because there are two drone shots of me, including one of my butt. Um, And they're oddly enough, the two that looked the worst because we had um, forgotten the um, uh, memory card for the drone. And we had driven all the way out into the desert. And so I had, we had to, um, uh, it had a function to save to your phone. And so we did that and it was a lower quality than the other, uh, drone footage. But we did a ton of drone footage for that movie Yeah, and every, and everybody thinks it's fucking stock footage and it drives me nuts. Well, I think a lot of it is, is because a lot of those shots that you guys replicated look identical to a lot of the shit that was in double down. Uh, we, and we tried for that. Yeah, we, we were very um, and it's so it eventually it evolved into more than just a Neil Breen uh, homage. It, it became more of a like general um, quote unquote, so bad it's good movie um, uh, love letter. And uh, so we tr- it's when we first started, it was like, OK, how can we replicate Neil Breen? And like the script was what if Neil Breen wrote a cyberpunk movie, which mm-hmm. now is old hat because he fucking did it. But oh, yeah. at the time, it seemed like a, a good idea. And uh, so we started off that way. And at some point in like the couple weeks before we started shooting, um, I was trying to get the the kind of Neil Breen cadence down. And I just couldn't do it. It's one of those things you just, you can't replicate Neil Breen. He's impossible. He is an alien creature and you're made of, you're made of different biology than Neil Breen. It's just not going to happen. And so I was like, okay. And and Sean even told me, you just got to do your own thing. Mm-hmm. And so I switched it up and said, okay, I'm just going to do how I imagine bad acting is. Because I'm I'm a competent actor. I'm not a great actor, but I'm a I'm a competent actor. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna dial it back and just be the guy that I've seen on a million film shoots and see what happens. So circling not even circling, but doubling back to the original uh, point here. Um, I, yes, we, we did feel like we had the, the edge on it. Um, it was somewhat a financial decision, but it was also, I think the both of us finally realizing that we could take a passion of ours and make something out of that passion. Um, and 
the fact that we were both, um, he was, he's, he was over 30 at the time. I, uh, I guess I was 20, 28, 27, 28. I don't remember. <laughs> I think it was 27. Uh, you know, so approaching 30 had not made anything out of my life yet. Had not, despite being a one and wanting to be a filmmaker my entire life had not made a proper movie yet. Uh, it was like, well, nothing to lose. Let's do it. And it turned out to be a, a great, a great thing for me because without that, I wouldn't have met most of the people that helped me make the head. And then without the head, I wouldn't have met most of the people, uh, that led to my next movie whenever that is. Thank you. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I got to put the kibosh on a lot of stuff. So with fatal future, there's more plotting. There's, there's act, and you address this. There's better acting. I, I, Neil Breen's acting, not just him. It's everyone in the movie. I liken a lot of it to the way David Lynch gets to pull performances out of people, <laughs> but there's such a uniform way that people speak in all of their media that there's no way you're going to crack that barrier. There's no way yeah. it, it is what it is. It lives in its own world. So I, I liked the fact that there were points where obviously you were guys were trying to push the whole, you know, we yell everything at each other angle that Neil Breen does in fate, especially in fateful findings. Everyone, for some unknown reason, yells at each other at the top of their lungs when they're only like a foot or two away from each other. Yeah, that's a bad acting trope, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So so there's better acting and a million times better editing in Fatal Future than in any of his movies. How far did you tell yourself you were going to go with the parody? My main issue for the entire, and this is actually, this stayed with me. It's not even um, something I dealt with while making the film. Uh, it, I wanted it to be a loving take on it. Mm -hmm. And I think, and so part of it was I wanted to replicate the feel of a, a bad, a, bad movie that in its own charming way works for the audience, uh, without being a one-to-one. -one. Yeah. But I did definitely want to, I was definitely aiming for that Breenism, um, uh, tone just because at the time those were the best bad movies I'd, I'd ever seen. There's a real fine line between just making a straight up parody homage to a film and making your own thing like taking yeah. influence from something and then making your own thing as opposed to just flat out shot for shot replicating right. it both sean and i were very conscious of the need to not punch down we actually had long conversations about punching down um and unfortunately i think people still think we did i definitely have a lot of reviews and a lot of comments especially from Neil Breen fans who think the movie is like just laughing at him and not appreciating him, which, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I art subjective, but I, I don't think we do that. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time considering that. We also spent a lot of time talking about how parodies of bad movies generally don't work for us. I am one of the few people that does not particularly like black dynamite. I, I just think it's too on the nose yep. usually with its parody aspect. You know, I, I, I find a few boom mic gags funny, but once you do it constantly, I just get really tired of it really right. fast and it feels really painful. So that's why instead of trying to make it an obvious parody, the goal while filming was to basically method direct the entire thing and just accept when bad things happen 
to us or like anything goes wrong and just let it fold into the film. So, for example, there's a scene where I'm talking to um, a hooker played by Cheyenne Weiss, who's amazing. It's a two shot. And whenever you are on her, the background's pretty much noiseless. And whenever you're on me, there's like a loud like blower or something in the background. <laughs> yep. And I've had several people say, oh, that was really smart that you, you know, had added that in to, you know, get the sound issue joke in there. And that wasn't that was just when we were shooting, I shot her side Um and then once we switched the camera around, uh, somewhere someone started using a blower, and I said, "You know what? Fuck it, that works. <laughs> that, that that makes sense in this movie. So why not?" And so I just let it happen. And most of the the mistakes in the movie are that way. Even like um, you can see some actors reading from the script slightly off camera. Yeah. And in some cases, uh, there's the one guy who gives the um, the tech to uh, James Nickerson's character in the beginning and you can you can base, you can practically read the script cuz he's wearing sunglasses. Yep. And I didn't really think about it. Like I had the 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 script idea was because no one would memorize their fucking lines and so it was just let's put the script out there for them. They're going to it's going to be shitty acting anyway, that's what we need. Yeah. So sure they can just read off their lines and then I only realized while we were shooting that scene, oh yeah, you can just plainly see the script. Cool. Let's keep that in. And so the approach for us to make it not a an uh, like two on the nose parody and not to do that thing that we disliked was to just let most of the comedy occur naturally because mm-hmm. in a Neil Breen movie it is just occurring naturally he's not setting out to make a funny movie and so if we set out to just make a movie and then it happens to have these funny things in there that's perfect mm-hmm. and obviously there's some things that are orchestrated uh we, we stole a few little bits, like me opening a car with a cell phone. We stole from Double Down. I just thought that was such a funny gag that I wanted to insert it real quick in there. Yeah. And some of the dialogue, obviously, was was meant to be kind of wooden and static. Sean and I kind of, I would say he wrote 60%. I wrote 40% because he, he's much more the sci-fi guy. And he had read so many cyberpunk novels uh, that he could kind of leech from. So, uh, but anyway, we, we, we specifically wrote it to kind of be half serious, uh, without, while also ignoring like obvious plot holes or problems with dialogue. We just kind of ignored them and let them happen. And in theory, and this, it became sort of an experimental film at this point in theory, all of the bad actors and all of the mistakes we would make along the way, once folded in would create the, uh, a replica of a bad movie. And, I guess in some case, uh, for some people, we succeeded. There's definitely a lot of reviews that seem to think this is a serious movie. Uh, I, had, I saw one where it said, uh, I saw this was listed as comedy and I couldn't tell. And I'm like, oh, like, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think it's obviously a comedy, but I also made the damn thing. So I'm a little, right. um, I'm not quite objective enough for that. That's one of those things. Once you put it out into the world, you, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of people that have seen Neil Breen and will get it. But when you're on a platform like Amazon Prime, I mean, you're open up to the world. Anybody. And let's be honest. Neil Breen, the appeal of Neil Breen's movies is very small. Most most people aren't going to go into those and last more than 15 minutes into those. And you know, it's funny is a lot of the people who actually really love Fatal Future haven't seen a Neil Breen movie. That's it's the hilarious. weirdest goddamn thing. Yeah. I, I And actually, I even had, and I this one I took offense to, uh, at our premiere at Millennium Fandom Bar downtown, which is where we shot the uh, Onus Sendai in the film, 
there was a friend of mine who came up and said, you made a, an actual good movie. And I was like, you son of a bitch. I just spent a year of my fucking life <laughs> trying to not make a good movie. <laughs> Um, although that that's kind of indicative of the film scene in Vegas, most people, and I'm glad no one will listen who lives here will probably listen to this. Um, it, it, it's a lot of people who don't know what a good movie is Mm -hmm. and mostly just suck up to other people. It's very, it's a very frustrating place, um, for film and there's, there's great filmmakers, don't get me wrong, but there's a, there's a, this like community of people who are just, just totally on that, like Neil Breen side of things where they don't. They don't get it. They don't understand that they're not making good movies. I'm I'm a hyper aware person. Sure, I am aware of every single flaw in both of my movies, and they all stick out to me, and they all drive me crazy. But these are people who will put out a film that is borderline, or, or even they'll put out a trailer for a film, and the trailer is unwatchable, and they'll be so proud of it. And if you fucking dare to tell them <laughs> that it is not a fucking masterpiece, they will tear you a new asshole. And I don't know why. I, I really don't. I don't know what that that cognitive dissonance is, but it's everywhere. So like when people I'll see I'm on a few Neil Breen um, Facebook groups and every so often the same question comes up. Is he in on this? Is this all an act? Is he like a, a, a Kaufman esque comedian? And the truth is, and I, you know, I don't know the guy personally. I've yeah. met him at a screening, but, uh, and I've taught and I've met people who have worked with him. I actually work very closely with a guy who, uh, he's the dude who pushes over the wheelchair dude in, um, I am here dot, 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 <laughs> dot now. So that guy who also provided sound equipment and camera equipment, um, to several Neil Breen movies. I've worked very closely with him. I've talked about Neil Breen with him. And uh, he's just one of those Vegas filmmakers, but he happens to have made several movies and gotten them out there. And this makes me a bad person probably to say this, but has made them more competently than those people. I think he's much better at like getting help from people sure, while sure. also maintaining his sort of uh, trademark dominance over every aspect of production. Whereas they're out there making like stuff on like mini DV cameras and not lighting them at all. Uh, I think that he's one of those guys who's like just shy of being a great avant-garde artist, but like there's just something not quite there. And because of that, he just, he makes these movies that are technically awful but super entertaining and strange to watch. Point is, I love New Brain, and I, I find uh, the Vegas film community frustrating. Um, there's a ton of great people here. Drew Marvick, for example, is amazing. Sure. Uh, but there's a, so much like hubris here, and I think that's what he most presents uh, when, you, when you speak to him or hear about him. It's all hubris, mm-hmm. and it, it pushes him through, pushes all of these guys through. They keep on making stuff because of hubris, and they don't listen to criticism. Luckily, Neil Breen doesn't need to listen to criticism. Nope. In fact, I hope he never ever listens to criticism. Yeah. Uh, he's like a he's a shining jewel of exception in that way. I, a question I wanted to ask you was: you were addressing that there were you know problems that kept happening during the production. With you know, you'd have sound issues, inconsistency of light, and you'd have all these other things. How tough was it for you, somebody who who seems self-aware enough to know what's a good editorial decision, what's a bad editorial decision to allow that to happen and not drive you absolutely fucking insane? Well, it, it definitely helped that I knew I was making a, a, a quote unquote bad movie, but there it hurt. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I work at a, a nerd bar 
and uh, I'm a photographer by, by I guess, trade. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm what you would call a pretty good photographer. I wouldn't say I'm amazing, but I am uh, better than a lot of people at making, making the pictures. <laughs> and uh, I do a good job uh, very quickly. I'm a very, I, I do these setups super fast because I usually have a lot of people to shoot in a very short amount of time. And I make very frustrating problems just work for me in some way, shape or form. And most of the time I succeed. So I'm a very visual person and to let certain things go while making Fatal Future was, was hard. The only shots I think where I kind of gave in a bit were the Onus Sendai shots. There's several shots in the bar that I think are legitimately pretty good looking, uh, especially like when I'm at the bar and you get those shots of um, Alex as um, Francois polishing that glass. Those are some pretty well lit shots, I got to say. But for the most part, it was okay. What would I normally do? Let's not do that. Or I would limit like what I was allowed to do, you know, how what lights I were, was allowed to use. Um, I specifically did not rent or borrow any lights from anyone. Um, so I kept my actual ability to do anything down. Um, I had far fewer um, continuous lights then than I do now. Um, now I shoot um, almost entirely with continuous lighting, even when I'm doing photos, whereas then I was using mostly flash, flash photography strobes. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it was mostly in addition to limiting myself in all these other ways, it was a lot of just limiting what I could physically do. And then from there it was okay. And also actually come to think of it, another thing that would come up quite a bit was Neil Breen movies don't always look that bad. Um, they're not all, you know, they're not like super blown out. I think like Birdemic is just a very poorly made film mm -hmm. from every possible angle. <laughs> I honestly cannot think of a single redeeming value, like objectively, for that, that movie. It's also one of the so bad it's good movies that I legitimately don't like watching. Um, so there is that. So, but because Neil Brain usually uses people who know what they're doing to some extent, it meant that I wasn't worried about something looking too good all the time. It was more about, well, we're not going to spend too much time trying to make it too good. Mm -hmm. So we'll try to make sure the exposure is right, which every so often we fuck that up because we were shooting so fast. But for the most part, it would be, okay, we're going to light, we're, we're going to throw this light against the ceiling. That's our light. Cool. Does it, is it more or less exposed? Great. Moving on. You know, all the stuff in the living room with the stock trader and his, and his wife, uh, that's how we shot it was just pop that light against the ceiling and we're good to go. It looks more or less correct. Right. And that's, that's how most Neil Breen movies look. They look yeah, more or less correct. And so it, you know, I, we put work into some of it. Um, I mean, the whole thing was work, but as far as the actual, like deciding how to light something, sometimes we put work into it. Sometimes we wouldn't, it just depended on what the setup was. Make the 
Fatal Future, obviously, being an homage to Neil Breen movies, where did the head come from? Because when I watched the head initially, uh, it feels like there's a ton of Frank Henenlotter all over this movie. Um, yet he didn't do any shot on video. I mean, so I, I was curious, like, where did this all come from? Well, I think when I came up with the idea for the head and fun fact, it actually started off as a musical was the original idea back in the day. <laughs> And I canned that when I decided to make it on, on VHS because I specifically knew I could not afford to make a musical. Uh, although, oddly enough, it turned into something with an actual soundtrack, which is wild. So it started off when I was watching a lot of Frank Hindenlotter movies back in, let's see, I was living in Asheville, North Carolina when I came up with the idea. So that was like 2013, 14. And I'd watched some Frank and Lauder in, in high school, but that was, I always have like phases that I go through where I'll mm-hmm. go back and watch a lot of some director. And I was definitely digging a lot of him and Lauder. I was already a big John Waters fan. And those were two of the, of the guys that really influenced the final concept the most. Uh, it was them and oddly enough, Clive Barker, which is barely in there, but that's another aspect that kind of seeped its way in was reading a lot of Clive Barker and the actual like impetus was the dumbest impetus for a movie. Uh, I have a, a wonderful friend named Cheryl, and unfortunately, she's never been in a movie of mine that got released. Uh, she was in my first movie, and I'm, she's probably happy that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but um, she, for whatever reason, I don't even know why, but she gave me this mannequin head, this like barber's mannequin head, which is the exact one that is in the movie. And I think like her sister was in a program or something. And I, I think she just said this would be a great movie prop or something way back, like 2008, 2009, maybe one day it, it clicked for me. Hey, I should write a story about a guy who is in love with this mannequin head. And I don't, and that's some that's like a, a thought process that always comes back around to me is people in love with objects. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I, there might be something deeper there. I don't know. I've never fucked an inanimate object before, but so that, I mean, that was the, the basic like inspiration where those sources and the fact that I had this, this prop and then the VHS thing. And I, again, I can't remember when, like what my initial like push into shot on video was. It just kind of happened, but I started watching a few, I think the one, the one that probably put me on this course was sledgehammer maybe, Mm. but either which way I had this, thought of, okay, I, I don't have any money. I'm not going to make another, you know, Neil Breen parody film. Cause that's just, that's I already, I'm getting bad reactions to it and I'm way done with that. Sure. Uh, I spent a year on this shit and most people either don't care or don't like it. So we're going to move on, go more towards my wheelhouse, which is horror movies. And I thought, okay, well, how can we hide the fact that we don't have any fucking money? How can we embrace that? And the irony here is I had just gotten a new 4K camera, but I thought, well, if it's shot on VHS, you can't really tell all the problems uh, technically because it's already it already looks like garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I already enjoyed those movies and since I knew that that was a path I was willing to take, um, I got myself a, a VHS camcorder and... Uh, that was that was it. I just said, let's make it on on tape. And uh, a lot of people at, said I should probably just fake it and post. I'm 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 a big fan of. I, I mentioned method directing with Fatal Future. I kind of like method filmmaking. I don't like method acting, oddly enough, but I love method filmmaking, <laughs> where you just give yourself a set uh, few rules and you work within the kind confines of those rules. It's like sure. if Dogma ninety five was less up its own ass. That's, that's right. how I like to make movies. And so it was just another thing where I could take a kind of broad gimmick and just have, have a go at it. And, you know, and it, it saved my ass in, uh, in several ways. I mean, most of the special effects, which I made only really work because they're on a kind of garbage format. And I think it adds a certain, I think, I think stylistically it works really like much better as a film than Fatal Future did. That is coming from, you know, a non-objective point of view, obviously. (laughs) Uh, But I think it turned out really well. I think when you are setting out to make something that has a limited appeal, which is like a a shot on video film, there are so many things that have already been out there, like the VHS series, which I think is the most ludicrous thing on the face of the planet. You have these movies obviously shot, on high-end digital cameras and then given scan line looks and wavering crap that just would never be apparent in any of this footage. And it just, most of them aren't supposed to be shot on VHS, which is weird to me. It's really weird when the whole concept is there, they take a VHS and put it into a VCR to watch these. But anyways, not to make it all about that, uh, the decision to, to go with shooting on VHS I think saves your movie completely compared to other things which are trying to emulate that um, because there's a certain look and aesthetic to that, that to those of us that grew up with that kind of thing or to the fans of that kind of thing immediately clicks in our brain where if you're making a shot on video film, obviously you're, you're going towards a niche anyway, if that's, that was your thing. So your decision to go with actually shooting it on VHS was an extremely wise one. I think I think it works great. It looks exactly the way I expect a shot on video film to look. 
Well, it makes me happy. <laughs> I, I, that, it was immediately what appealed to me about it. Like, I remember you sent me that trailer and I was in. I was balls deep in this movie from frame one. Like, <laughs> I was like, OK, yep, I'm going over to the Vimeo right now. I'm purchasing this thing and I'm going to watch it right now. I congratulate you because most people nowadays kind of take, you know, the easy route because shooting on VHS, obviously uh, getting a camcorder nowadays isn't necessarily the easiest thing, even though they're dirt cheap and they're plentiful. They're out there. The upkeep is a little bit of a pain in the ass. And the thing that really is different about yours compared to like the old school stuff is that obviously you decided to to post this digitally. Um, was it because you didn't want to deal with the tape to tape? editing or what was what was the decision well i mean i definitely didn't feel like doing tape to tape editing (laughs) um (laughs) i don't blame uh, you probably because it took so long to shoot that i i just couldn't bear it anymore um as much as i love this movie um and i can still watch it and enjoy it that's a i think a rarity for for filmmakers is actually enjoying your own work i love that but i i couldn't deal with the that editing process and i felt like by that point i'd I'd kind of earned my stripes like i already i shot the goddamn thing yeah Uh, i i I, it's okay if i open up premiere for this yeah and uh so i i did that uh as far as like putting it out digitally it's all just expense by the time i finished this movie i had no more money left to do anything and then of course we finally put it out in february and then the idea was we would also add um dvd uh, Blu-ray and VHS with the Blu-ray having like a ton of extras to make up for the fact that it's a Blu-ray. But certain events kind of muddled that. It wasn't all pandemic related. Part of it was I was kind of putting it off a little bit while yeah. we did pre-production for another movie. And I was kind of working out deals specifically with the VHS tape. The DVD and Blu-ray, it was just a matter of I need to get all the materials ready and I just didn't have them. Uh, we didn't have a behind the scenes like video person or anything. So it's all like I need to get all these interviews in. I need to get commentary recorded. That means coordinating with these people. Sure. And so the idea was uh, for like, you know, three or four months, I'd be putting all this together while we pre pro for this other film. And then DVD and Blu-ray would come out. And ideally, we would have reached a deal with someone to uh, produce the VHS version. Have you had anybody come up to you asking for a VHS copy of the head? I've had a couple. We did have an Indiegogo campaign and there are some people who um, I do need to send VHS tapes for that. But I think it's like so it's less than 15 people. I don't remember how many now, but um, I still owe them some tapes. And I think part of it was I knew that because um, I, I asked Drew Marvick. Yeah, because uh, he distributed a uh, pool party massacre on VHS. Um, and sold out entirely, which motherfucker. Um, <laughs> love, I love that man <laughs> and his fucking charisma. Um, I thought that I could get it all done through a third party, and then it was kind of like nothing happened. Sure. And then and then this happened, and now I can't go out and like, get the supplies I need to do it myself. And it's all just a it's a fucking nightmare. Um, but those those will come out eventually. Um, I'm more interested in the DVD and Blu-ray because I really want to have like. Uh, a bunch of extras to show like kind of um, give the people who really enjoy the film. But mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to do when you can't be within, you know, m- less than six feet of people. <laughs> right. Yeah. We just got to be patient about it. Uh, speaking of Drew Marvick, how did he get involved with the head? I mean, obviously, Pool Party Massacre got put out there and it's a fun flick and it actually has a lot of the same parody vibes that, 
your first film, Fatal Future, had. How did you get in contact with him? How did he get involved with the flick? I think I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, what happened was after Fatal Future, I became friends with Thanos, who uh, was was the sound guy on the head. And he's the guy that worked with uh, Neil Breen. Um, and he really appreciated my parody of, of Breen. He's less of a fan of the man than I am. He was friends with Drew. And I don't know why. Maybe it was just like because we, we needed the homeless character. But he recommended Drew. And I just you know uh, met him. We talked about it. He actually was the one that recommended the history of of, um, shot on VHS horror movies book, um, Analog Nightmares. He was the one that recommended that book because he knows the guy personally who wrote it. um, And I think appeared in like a movie of his or something. And uh, so we just hit it off meeting about the head. And yeah, it's not not a terribly exciting story. I was casting for a homeless guy. He plays all the homeless guys in the in the Vegas area. So we we talked to, to each other. That that's quite a gimmick to get involved in. What, what does he put on his resume when he sends it out there? Play homeless. I'm you I'm a homeless fun. You know what's funny is he actually has all the costuming. Like I, he didn't have to come up with it. I didn't have to come up with any of it. His whole costume was just in his little like homeless man trunk. <laughs> That he keeps because he plays a homeless guy so much just because he has a big beard. You know, when you have a big beard, you play a homeless guy. There you go. It, or Santa. There. That's awesome. Or Santa. I would love to see him as a Santa Claus. Yeah, I, I just I'm really excited for his next uh, whenever. I don't know if or when uh, Pool Party Massacre 2 will happen. Uh, I and we've and I've talked with Drew about this. Uh, Pool Party Massacre for me doesn't work very well. I think that it is um, a fun idea that mm-hmm. has way too many uninteresting shitty characters talking for prolonged periods of time. <laughs> this is true. Um, but we were talking kind of about that uh, at the end of one of the shoot days. And he was telling me a bit about like his plans for party massacre too. And I am so jazzed about that, like so jazzed. And I, I really need that to happen. Um, of course now it's, you know, who, who knows, but right, right, right. Um, that if that ever happens, it'll be a fucking revelation. I can't wait. The thing that appeals to me mostly when you're going to get these kind of movies, which are, you know, send ups or, you know, low budget horror comedies is is quirky characters and a sensibility you don't see elsewhere. And in the head, there were so many instances like the the mother and and Peter, who for some reason, she's so fucking fixated on milk and sardines. What, yeah, I don't know why where did that come from. That. I have no idea. I don't know. I, I definitely I definitely wrote that because it was three of us <laughs> writing it. I, I, I definitely wrote that scene. And I definitely came up. I think it's just because I like milk and sardines. Honestly, I do think you that, sit and eat that. Do you do you find no, yourself? I, no, I don't. I but I it's two th- things I enjoy that I know not everybody enjoys. And uh-huh. I know that people would find gross combined. Yeah. Also there's, you know, I, I knew that he needed to, she needed to want him to eat plenty of protein. And I thought, well, milk and sardines, they have protein. Uh, but I don't know why that became a, like a big, I think it was because we wrote the script like from beginning to end, like we didn't, uh, have it really too planned out. Yeah. And so when we wrote it, that's you know the first stuff right there. And we knew we were making kind of a bizarro, kitschy film. And I think that it 
seemed better at that point in the process to add this thing that was very repetitive yeah. and strange. Um, and then most of the rest of the movie was rewritten, so that doesn't really count. Um, fun fact uh, that I, I've divulged before, so I don't know if you know this, but uh, most of the movie as is was not when the way it is when we started. We actually rewrote the entire film less than halfway through, but with like what, after we'd started shooting, I think all of the mom stuff was shot before we rewrote the script. What what brought that about? Why did you have to rewrite the script? Oh, it was a whole thing. Um, so we had the Darcy character. And originally, the idea was that she was kind of this like uh, innocent country girl who picks him up when he's like on his way back from the grocery store and drives him home. And then the finale would be him kind of uh, falling in love with her and the like basically what happens at the end of our film more or less as far as her character goes would happen inside the house and then basically all of that um the homeless guy stuff all took place in peter's house mm-hmm. um and then the girl that we cast as darcy pulled out of the film um which i never you know i, I never get upset with people too much about that sort of thing because i'm not paying them and most of them are not actual actors. So, you know, I understand. But this was one where it, it did hurt a bit because I don't know how all these filmmakers find women who are willing to show their tits on film. <laughs> I I rarely find myself needing that because I don't actually care about tits right. in movies. Sure. Um, it does, it's not something I actively go for. But I knew that for that scene near the end to work, uh, she had to have her breasts out. It just had to be that way. It wouldn't be as gross and fucked up if she didn't show some skin. So I, uh, was suddenly out of, out an actress. I didn't know any other actresses who would show their breasts. And, um, I was where I do most of my business. I was at the bar that I work at (laughs) and I was talking to Mishka who wound up becoming Darcy. And I told her my problem, not actually looking for an actress, but, uh, I was just complaining <laughs> and, uh, she said, well, I'll do it. I was like, really? You'll, you, you're, you'll, you'll, you'll show your tits on film, all that. Yep. Oh, okay, cool. Um, awesome. And I knew just from knowing her that she probably wasn't going to be a very good actress. Was that a big deal for you though? If she was a very good actress in a shot on video style film? Yes and no. Um, I like to have people who I know I can work with easily. I think most of the performances in the head are pretty okay as as far as SOV goes. I think we put in some some good performances, uh, especially like Danny. I think Danny's great as Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely wanted to match that as best as possible. Uh, and then I also didn't want to have to spend hours coaxing a performance out of an actor yeah and so that's why i hired certain people is because i had worked with them before or i knew them and i knew and i knew that they could do it in fact um peter was originally going to be played by james nickerson who played the stock trader in fatal future and in this one he plays the uh kind of shitty white cop (laughs) yep and uh but he he had to he had to pull out of it um for reasons uh having to do with the content and so it was another, th- I was at the bar and Danny said, you know, if you need anything for your next movie, I'm here to help. And I said, do you, you want to be the lead character? You want to read for that? And he was like, yeah. And so, uh, he read for the part and he was amazing. Yeah, he was. 
uh, in reading for it. And I was like, fuck, I'm sold. All right. I'm gonna, and so I, I rewrote it slightly for him because it was meant to, it was meant to be like a white incel type. Okay. And he's not white. <laughs> um, so I had to change it a little bit. Um, but, uh, so we, we, we recast Darcy and Mishka, the way she looks in the head is exactly the way she looks in real life. Mm. That is a hundred percent her aesthetic to a T. Uh, all of her outfits are her own. Uh, there were several points where I had to do some last minute editing stuff because she just brought an outfit of hers that didn't match the previous one. Um, but they're all, it's all that, um, she even shaved her eyebrows at one point in the halfway through production. And I nearly blew my brains out, uh, <laughs> before I realized that the way that she had such thick makeup, you couldn't tell. Right. Right. Um, so we, we, we bring her in and suddenly the entire, um, concept of her character doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, cause she's supposed to be very innocent and there's no way that this chick is innocent. Right. Uh, so then I said, okay, well, what if she's part of a punk band? And cause I, I love that, that aesthetic so much and I like punk music quite a bit. Why not? So then I mean, I had a problem of, oh, okay, we'll put in this band. Let's call it unicorn grinder. Cause that sounds fun and shit. Now we need music. And I figured I could borrow instruments and I figured I could put people on those instruments to kind of play them. Um, but I did need music cause I wasn't buying any, there's no way for that to happen. Of course. And sure enough, there I was at the bar and I'm talking to, uh, I believe Shannon who, uh, she plays the, uh, drummer for the band in the film. Uh, Rebecca, I believe is her name. And, uh, I'm talking to Shannon and I mentioned that I need music and she says, well, we have a band. And sure enough, they have a band. It's called the good hurt. It's kind of a, it's like big with the steampunk community in Vegas and um, her husband, Roger, who plays Garth in the film, the one of the, the lead singer uh, and uh, guitarist, I guess, he is immediately on board. And long story short, I ask him for a few songs to put in for the band to play. And he, within like a day or two, sends me the songs that are in the movie. And That's he eventually awesome. he cleaned them up a bit for the final version, but um, it's basically exactly as it is in the film. And anytime I needed another piece of music he would do it. Um, when I asked for, uh, the whole, so booty flavor is a big part of the movie <laughs> and people love booty flavor. Oh yeah. Uh, it's on Spotify. And, um, I, uh, I literally, when, when Peter's like, um, trying to get rid of the pizza guy's car, uh, I had this idea that he would turn on the car and there'd be a pop song playing on the radio. And so I was like, Hey Roger, could you give me a pop song? And he said, sure. And I was like, I just need a 30 second pop song. Simple as that. He sends me back a fucking three and a half minute <laughs> club beat. Ex again, exactly as it is in the final film. He sends me booty flavor as what he considers to be a, just a random pop song that might play. Jesus, um, that thing fucking killed me when that came on. That it's really and that's And that's why like, I changed that whole scene to use booty flavor because originally it was just like he was listening to rock and roll or something. And, uh, when I heard that song, I was like, a, this scene actually works better without any music in the car and B this song as the kids say <laughs> slaps. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, changed that up cause I knew that was special. And Roger now hates that song cause he, he hears about it all the time. I'm sure. But, uh, so by bringing them in, and changing it to a punk band, it it just completely changed the plot. And so, like everything between 
him going to the grocery store to um, basically the last moments in the mansion. Almost all of it was rewritten uh, to accommodate that punk band aspect. And I think it, I mean, you, you really can't tell in the final film that we no. completely changed uh, or shifted gears halfway through, but uh, it, it made the movie better. Um, it, and I think it taught me that you have to be open to change and you have to be like, you have to learn to roll with the punches because in fatal future, of course, we're taking all the mistakes and folding them in. And there was a bit of that in the head. There's a few bits where things just fell apart. And I said, you know what? That's funny. Keep it in. But for the most part, it was less folding things in and more Mm -hmm. finding ways around my problems. Sure. Um, And actually even so the, with the whole um, final scenes taking place, uh, in the mansion, I, uh, decided that with the punk band, it made no sense for them to go back to Peter's house. So I was like, okay, well, here's a producer character. Let's have him have like a big house that he, he brings him to cause he wants to, to fuck Darcy. Um, so I need more shitty men in this movie. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I need. More <laughs> shitty guys. I wrote it as a mansion thinking we could probably rent a place, but that turned into, that turned out to be unfeasible cause there was just no place that was cheap enough for us. And I was desperate and sure enough, you won't believe it, but there I was at the bar. <laughs> this talking. bar seems to be you need to make every movie based on yeah. just wait. And, and the bar will provide everything that you need. Basically, because uh, I was talking to Roger and Shannon at the bar and they say, oh, we know someone with a mansion. And sure enough, they live down the road from uh, this crazy house that was one third of this ridiculous um, Frankenstein mansion by the former Lieutenant governor of Nevada. And, uh, uh, he had sold that third to some friends of Roger and Shannon's and they were like renovating it. Uh, hence like the construction stuff you see kind of in there. Um, and we, we went over and told them what we were going to do. They're fucking weird as hell. Uh, they, they call my wife and I, the vanilla couple, um, and why are you the vanilla couple? Oh boy. Is that <laughs> a whole thing you don't even want to get into? <laughs> uh, yeah, that, it's a whole, I'm considered weird. Like as a, as an artist, I guess, like I have very weird tastes. Um, but I'm not a very, I'm a pretty humdrum guy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. like I, I think I have a weird sense of humor and I can get a little wild sometimes, but I'm overall pretty standard issue. Um, and my wife and I are just kind of, you know, we're just, some people. Sure. Uh, and they're all just like this whole other subset <laughs> yeah. of, of, of people that um, I love, but they're definitely more odd than we are as far as their um, natural proclivities. <laughs> um, but we, we hit it off with, with those folks. And after making the movie at their house, even though I got blood on their carpet, uh, we became really great friends. And we, we go over, uh, we used to go over all the time, um, plan on going over more at some point. I've, I've got, I've gained so many friends through these movies, yeah. um, that honestly, like for anyone out there who just wants friends, like you just have a hard time getting friends, <laughs> just go make movies. You'll get friends. Trust me. It's not that hard. Like I don't even actively try to form new relationships and I'm just like covered in them. <laughs> Was it out of practicality and necessity that you ultimately became one of the actors as the slimy producer in this movie? Kind of. Um, I had originally planned on playing the um, asshole who uh, is snorting coke in his car. 
Um, I had written that part for me as a little cameo because I had planned on not being in this one. Yeah. Uh, since I had kind of tuckered myself out with Fatal Future. When we were rewriting it, we came up with the Vern character. And I said, you know what? It, I, I don't know anyone to play this part. And I can be pretty fucking slimy. I'll just play Vern. Because I, I like acting a lot. Um, it's one of my favorite things. I'm, I don't love watching myself, but I, I do love acting. Yeah. And, and I'm competent at it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a proudly competent actor. Yeah. It was, it was partly cause I didn't think of anyone who could do it. Um, who I would trust to like show up. Cause it's, that's the other thing is like getting people to show up on set is the fucking is. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, when you have zero of, money, I mean, it's next yeah. to impossible. That, uh, that scene of, um, drew uh breaking and entering into peter's house while the cops in there that scene was shot over the course of two nights because we had it planned for both of them and i even had a, a fucking great shot planned of the two of them not knowing that the other one's in the house same shot and about 20 minutes before we started shooting uh we found out that charles couldn't make it which totally fair he has a, a really weird job that does not like have a normal schedule so totally makes sense um, but that was like, well, fuck. And we couldn't get drew the next day. Cause drew is a super busy guy. He is always doing something. So I had to scrap almost all of my shots. And so we shot all of Drew's stuff and then I just matched it with lighting to, uh, Charles's stuff. And it is as you see, and a lot of the stuff in the movie beyond that, we had to say, okay, we, we can't like, we, we didn't have, um, Agmar, um, who plays jagged. Uh, for the concert footage at Double Down at the the bar, mm-hmm. and so, and you, I don't even know if you see this in the final film, but we put Matt, my co-writer and producer, uh, who plays the dead lawyer in the hallway. We put him in a leather jacket and gave him a bass guitar and just put him in the corner so that if the the, the guitar and a hand could like push into frame a little bit on a few shots. Um, and then the rest, we would just focus on Darcy and Roger. And there's already stuff we had to hide there because uh, Shannon cannot play the drums to save her life. <laughs> so it was just a whole thing. Um, oh, and uh, Mishka didn't know the songs that I had sent her. And so she was lip syncing to the songs that I was playing. Um, I think they actually let us use like the sound system at the bar or something. We were playing it on something through my phone. But um like she had, she was like stumbling through trying to get the lyric. Like what I have in there was like what I could get, <laughs> for that. but there was a lot of stuff where I was just like, uh, just put these puzzle pieces together. Sure. God damn it. Well, it works. I, I definitely didn't notice that. Uh, how much of a pain in the ass was it to shoot the VHS, uh, lighting wise and, and just dealing with that old technology. I will never do it again. It was a fucking mass pain. I actually, I do like shooting on beta. Um, it requires a lot of light, but yes. um, at the end of uh, last year, I think in, maybe it was, I think it was September, I shot uh, with Thanos actually as my DP, and he's amazing, a short film on beta, uh, beta cam SP specifically. And that was a, that was a dream. That was great. Um, it did, the wind was taken on my sails a bit when I realized that we had stolen or inadvertently stolen um, a gag from Daniel isn't real, which is an amazing movie <laughs> and they did it so much better. Uh, um, but uh, we shot on beta chem SP and it was great. If heavy shooting on VHS, because like I, 
I, I couldn't find a single VHS camcorder that had manual settings for exposure. Yeah. It's almost always like you get like two options for gain and that's it. And so what hap- ends up happening is whatever the brightest spot is in the room, it'll try to expose for that spot. Yep. And I, I didn't have, this is something I didn't even think about going in because I'm an idiot. Always, ha- I didn't always have time to um, light the scene properly so that the exposure would work. You know, with a normal camera, it'd be fine, but it's trying to expose for these spots I don't want it to expose for. And there's a few shots where it just changes mid-scene. Um, like there's one where Charles is at the house kind of interrogating Peter and it, it does it and it drives me nuts every time I see it. And then there's the picnic scene in the alleyway that <laughs> is otherwise perfect. But, uh, I would say probably one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a movie ever. But go ahead, continue, please. <laughs> Thank you. We, we all love it. It was oddly enough one of the only scenes where almost no one laughed at the premiere, and we were all. Super oh my pumped. god! How is that possible? That movie fucking that know. scene kills me every time I've seen this. But I, I I bought an entire bucket of KFC chicken for that scene because I wanted a plate of chicken bones and. I wanted it to look gross, so I said, "Okay, well, I'll just buy a bucket of KFC's chicken, yeah. and I'll we'll, we'll eat all of it and put it on a plate, and that'll be the gross thing." And um, first off, K- buckets of KFC chicken are really expensive. I wasn't expecting how expensive that was, so we we I bring them over to James Nickerson's apartment because um, it's right across the street from the alley we're using. Those of us there, we just eat up all this chicken, put it on a plate, we put it on the you know picnic area, and. I love backlighting characters. I think backlighting characters is one of the best things you can do to add a little production value. Don't do that on a shot on VHS movie (laughs) because it'll expose weird. Yes. And for the life of me, I could not get it to expose properly. I had a reflector on them. And unfortunately, I'd only brought the one light uh, like a dumbass. Yeah, there's no way you're going to bounce that much light into them to get them to expose without them silhouetting completely. Yeah. So I, I fucked that up a little bit. I don't think most people notice. Nope. It's just it's really more just one of those things where I had an idea and it was really great and then I fumbled the execution and it's fine, but it's not what I wanted. <laughs> and that it hurt more because we had done so much to change that scene. Originally that scene takes place in a public park. Yeah. When we were rewriting, Matt rewrote that as taking place in an alley. And I think I might have suggested the alley. I don't remember, but he wrote it where they like walk into an alley and they're talking and it's not actually a picnic or anything anymore. And I said, what if we kept it a picnic, but it's in an alleyway? <laughs> it is a stroke of fucking genius. It comes out of nowhere. It's one of the greatest ideas I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, it's ne- I've never seen that in a movie before. It, it, it starts up and I'm just watching this couple go through this conversation about lovely hand jobs and all this shit. I'm just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I want more of this in movies. So yeah, I think you got you- the best hand skin around Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to figure you so good, but, but it being in like a parking lot alleyway, absolute stroke of genius. I think whatever problems you see in it I, as an audience member, the, the entire scenario is so off kilter and so weird that, all the t- and a lot of that is, you know, throughout the entire movie, the misdirection of things that are happening uh, due to the energy of the production. You don't notice them. You That's know, good. that makes me happy. It, uh, it absolutely I, worked for me. I've, I'm honestly I'm pleasantly surprised by the the reactions we've gotten. I'm sure we're we're due for some bad reviews at some point. But the the worst review I've gotten was literally all in the the reviewers ratings. 
Um, the actual review was very nice. They just, you know, I think that they were uh, looking at it as like um, putting it up against like other productions and their production quality. And so like they're like the um, they, they were rating like the effects and the movie itself. And it was all like half stars and shit. But then the review was like, you got to watch this shit. It's crazy. I haven't had a single single bad word. I've had a few people who couldn't finish it because they were too grossed out, which, which I'm interested. I, I will also take. I like that. That yeah. makes me happy. I had a few people gag at the premiere. That made me happy. I just have a couple more questions about the film itself okay. for you. And we can go through these as quick as possible because these are very there's probably a pretty quick answer to these. The main one, because you already talked about the picnic scene. Tell me what exactly is in the suitcase? Is it poop? Is it blood? It's poop. Yeah. It's poop. It's poop. Yeah. Okay. Cause yeah, that's a, that's a Clive Barker influence. Okay. So, so tell me why is it poop? Well, I, I wanted my own version of magic in the movie. Um, <laughs> so you have poop magic. Well, there's a lot of excrement related things in Clive Barker novels. Yeah. And I just really like Clive Barker. And so when I was coming up with like how magic would work in my world, I thought, okay, well, it should be poop based. And um, <laughs> so it's all poop and blood. Um, and he adds the blood in there later. And that, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it makes sense in my head. So it goes on screen. There was such confusion amongst the people that sat because we usually have group watches for all these movies we do on the podcast and uh, for my Patreon subscribers. And nobody could we couldn't come to a consensus as to what it actually was. Me being a poop connoisseur, I guess. Definitely. <laughs> I'm like, that's poop. <laughs> that's 100%. Yeah, we, we specifically because uh, there's. There's pudding in there, which we made with milk for some reason. I don't know why we did that. That uh, that suitcase is long gone. Much to my chagrin, I actually had a plan to put that in another scene to like set it up a little bit more. But then by the time we got there, it was like all moldy and awful. And I said, fuck it. We're tossing this thing. But we it was it was that it was um, I feel like there was like oatmeal or something in there. But I don't remember exactly what it was. But then we had like, um, you know, like when you buy a computer or something, there's those um, kind of like cardboard pieces that are fit in. They're kind of lumpy. Yeah. Uh, we use those to like fill it in. And then we covered that in our weird, primarily putting poop mixture. Um, and yeah, it was just poop in the script. It just says that he, I think, opens it up and it's full of shit and uh, he covers his face in it. And yeah, poop. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit about Thunder and the hanging dong sequence? Did that come <laughs> naturally? Was that in the script or did he just decide uh, to walk in hanging dong? I'm 90% certain it was not in the script originally. I could be wrong about that. Um, all I remember from that scene in the script is the breakfast meth joke. <laughs> um, and I think, well, I think, I think in the script he comes in naked, but it doesn't specifically say you see his penis. And the idea was just to show off his his masculinity and, you know, get the basic idea across that this is a hell, a roommate from hell. Yeah. And then so Jeremy, who plays Thunder, he is a very good friend of mine and he wanted to be I think he wanted to be in a movie. And he he was one of those guys who I met through the bar and he really wanted to help out as best as he could. And I I believe this was in the rewrites where we said we should add Jeremy and we should just make him like Jeremy because Jeremy, even though he's like, he's a very nerdy guy, but he's yeah. definitely into fitness and he does have a certain kind of bro-y thing that's not quite as 
pronounced as in the film. Sure. And so we wrote this character of Thunder because Thunder just made it. Well, also he's called uh, like Buff Thor, um, or or he used to be called Chubby Thor, and then I think he maybe still called Chubby Thor. I don't remember. But anyway, that was his. his, I think it's his name on Instagram, and it's what we would call him sometimes. (laughs) And so we called him Thunder. And um, he said at one point, and you should never do this. If you ever, whoever's listening, if you ever become my friend and decide that you want to help me out on a movie, never say you'll do anything for me because that always ends up with me asking the question, will you show your dick? And I, I was like, well, uh, Oh, and he said, I'll do anything. Will you show your dick? Yeah. I'll show my dick. And you know, I, that's production value right there. Um, penises always add production value titties sometimes, but I feel like almost any movie that's not made by me can get titties. Uh, very easily. Yeah, you can get the dong. That's your superpower. Like people uh, are really weird about their dicks. Um, they don't want to show their dicks. So to find someone who wants to show their dick in a movie is next to impossible. So the second I meet someone who's willing to show their dick in the movie, nine times out of ten, I will put it in there. We actually, uh, Danny said he would show his dick, but we just couldn't find a place for it. Plus, it's pierced, and I'm not. I was always like weird about like, would Peter have a pierced dick? That seems odd yeah so we never got around to getting his dick just him and his his wonderful underwear that was all his everything you see him in, in underwear wise is his but uh so we just had jeremy come in naked um i did it fast just in case um we did i think two takes one wide one <laughs> one medium i guess and uh that was it yeah and we just had a dick to wrap this up you you said you were looking to get some physical release of this. Have you taken this out to any festivals or anything like that? Or has it just mostly been the digital release? Um, we we sent it into some festivals. The only one that actually accepted us was Sin City Horror Fest, which I'm going to be honest, it's probably because Drew is one of the organizers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it would have gotten anywhere otherwise. Uh, most people, I think, when they first start it, they just turn it off because it looks like garbage because you really have to like know what you're getting into, I think. I, I stressed out so much over both these movies and they took up so much time. Like I, my, my wife became pregnant and gave birth to our child in the time it took to make the head. I don't need bullshit. <laughs> and so if it means that I'm going to put out my super niche movie that very few people will have any interest in myself, fine. It's less stress for me. So, you know, on the downside of things, we don't have physical copies yet, and that sucks. And it makes me a little frustrated because I do want to get them out to the backers, and I do want to have them available to the people who want them. But at the same time, I'd rather it be under my own terms. Uh, Who who knows how that'll go for me in the future. Um, But for this movie, at least, because it's so niche and so just close to me, I don't really feel like just I don't feel like dealing with that. Yeah. I don't blame you. Listeners, you will love this movie. You should definitely check this out. I give it the highest recommendation. It's one of my easily one of my top favorite of this kind of movie that I've seen in a long time for like the the Neo. If you want to call it this, the Neo shot on video uh, genre, definitely the head. Pat yourself on the back, man. This thing was really great time for my listeners. Where can they find this movie if they are, are so inclined to check this out? Well, if you want to support a massive corporation, you can find it on Amazon Prime. 
Um, it's not available as um, free for Prime because apparently it's too erotic, which I am still shocked by, but that's what Amazon said. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so it's available there. That's the easiest, most accessible. Uh, if you want to go the more indie route, uh, Vimeo on demand has it. Uh, it's a bit hard to search. There's some like parameters because it's um, graphic film, but uh, you can you can find it on there. Um, and we have links on our um, website and on our Facebook page for Manatee Party Films. Uh, and I think it's going to be on Troma now at some point in the near future. Um, that's in the middle of happening, but. From, unless something huge changes, the only thing left is I have to send in all the necessary files and what have you for that. Sure. So I, I'm 98% certain it'll be on Troma now. So, you know, if you want to support indie cinema uh, and, and, and trash cinema and, and kitschy bullshit uh, while also watching my film, uh, you could subscribe to Troma now. But that's not the only thing you got going. Tell, tell my audience a little bit about your YouTube channel that you have. Oh, and I, I have a YouTube channel. Um, the weird little username thing is Photog Torpedo because I made it years ago and they won't let me fucking change it. But, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Michael Keane on YouTube. I, um, may, I, I do reviews mostly for Blu-rays of the cult and horror variety, mostly vinegar syndrome releases. Uh, people really enjoy them. I do unboxings of, uh, my vinegar syndrome Blu-rays that are by all accounts actually entertaining. I still don't know. I don't watch unboxings, but I do <laughs> make them and apparently mine are pretty fucking dope. So, uh, <laughs> you know, cost you nothing to subscribe. And, uh, I, I put out a lot of weird fucking content. Thank you. Thank you for coming on Astro Radio Z and doing this, man. My pleasure. This is fun. I can't wait for the next thing. Can you give us a hint of what the next thing might be? If you asked me a month ago, I might have. I'm so like uncertain about what we're going to be able to do after all this that I don't even know for a fact. I'm I'm 90 percent certain that we'll be making another film in the sci fi realm and it will be shot in 4K. Uh, the next one is also a retro movie, but without any um, physical like tech gimmicks. Sure. Um, but it is very much a retro sort of, um, I guess, throwback movie. Cool. So it's 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 kind of a we still don't have any money. So this is what we can do. Yeah, sure. We can make it look pretty cool. God damn it. Awesome. So that's that's what you can look forward to is we're, we're from this point on, at the very least, we're making stuff that looks yeah pretty good. It's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you.
You are listening to Astro Radio Z. How you doing? Vaughn here. Motion picture pink episodes. I don't know. A subset of Motion Picture Massacre. Yeah. Uh, first, let me thank Derek for letting me do this. Um, I don't know if I'm getting any traction, but I like doing these subsets and contributing to other podcasts. So, thanks, man. Anyway, tonight we're going to tackle 1974's Wife to be Sacrificed. This is Nakatsu's um, biggest film of the time period. I think it's still considered one of their biggest films. Uh, it's a softcore pornographic SM film starring Nomi Tani and directed by Masuro Tomio. Um, these two people actually made a film earlier in the year in 1974 called Flower and Snake, which Derek and Paula did the first five films on the podcast at OG Castle, which you can find online. Go and listen to them, they're really good. Anyway. So I wanted to kind of, after that, I was like, I know that a man did a lot of films. He did. He did a shitload of films. Mostly s sex films. Uh, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so the uh, synopsis of this is Akio, played by Tomia, uh, is startled to see her estranged husband standing. He's pretty much sitting outside his car. He's in his car, standing, looking out the window to a prepudescent child. I think about a six or seven year old kid, girl, uh, peeing by the river. So she's got her, her little dress pulled up. She's pissing. It's gross. <laughs> she kind of he confronts her. He she has one, nothing to do with him and kind of walks off. Next scene we see is a little girl crawling for her uncle, running to to, to uh, Tomia, Akio, Akio, and she's like, "Oh, what happened?" Well, you know, and the cops come and they take the kid away to kind of find out where she, where her parents are, and whatnot. <laughs> Two detectives show up to her house and they explain to her. Well, you know, that child wasn't missing. Was missing. It was actually she was actually kidnapped and she has seams of uh, sexual trauma to her. So she may have had some kind of sexual kind of escapades with someone. She may have been raped by her, her estranged husband. Uh, <laughs> played by uh, what's his name? Nagatashi Sakamoto, who looks just grimy and gross in this. And he's wearing a suit, but it looks like he's probably been wearing that suit for a long while. Um, he's been running around hiding from the cops for years and you find out why he had a promiscuous escapade with a teenage girl he was a high school teacher he must have raped her too ugh the great thing is at the start of the film when they first when they first meet he goes you know they kind of have this little conversation she runs off and then she goes to visit her mother's grave and they're talking and she's very distant and very hesitant she's very angry with him because she just kind of left you know, didn't take up for his, uh, you know, his misgivings and kind of went to jail for whatever the hell he did. Um, and they both, came, you know, he goes, well, you know, she's like, he's like, I well, never remarried. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm done with men. Men, and she's like, well, he's like, well, so am I. And then he kidnaps her by putting a ring on her finger, which is attached to a big long chain, bringing into a cabin in the wood, an abandoned cabin in the wood, uh, tying her up against her will, uh, and you know, raping and torturing her. <laughs> Um, you see some really kind of vicious and violent shit in this film. The first rape is him 
raping her with a candle, a lit candle, not the burnt lit end, but the back end. Just uh, there's a scene when she tries to escape where she cuts him in the face, and he kind of ties her up and burns her genitals with wa- with burns her genitals, her thighs, and her stomach with candle wax. Um, she is forced to get a clean shave down there by by him. Um, she tries to escape again. She gets raped by a bunch of hunters, which is just not cool. Not cool, guys. Because they see what she's wearing underneath the, the trench coats and like, fuck it, let's get it. And they're chewing at those fucking knots to get, it, to get into that because she is tied up like it's a suit with just her tits sticking out <laughs> of rope. He finds a couple that seem to have tried to kill themselves because they can't, you know, be together anymore. And then he kind of, he makes it his job to break them emotionally, turn them into just hateful people that hate each other and, and have no love for anything. Um, but I think of the upper hand and I'm not going to give it away. The last 10, 20 minutes of the film is really brutal. One reviewer um, put it as a, a living nightmare, which I can agree with. It's a constant kind of revolving just, of just, just, it's not. And I understand that if it wasn't, if it was more consensual, I think a lot of people would like, oh yeah. But you can definitely see that why people were really into this film. It's twisted and bizarre. There's not a real happy ending. It's not. Where it goes is just like, ugh. You know what I mean? The turn, the, the shit gets twisted and turned and, and it's like, oh. <laughs> right? You can see this on X Films or any other porn site because it's on there because it's a it's softcore porn film. Um, the last release of this on DVD was 2007. I, in the early 2000s, there was this kind of big revival of trying to get the Americans into watching pink film. And like, hey, we've we've we exploited every other kind of kind of Japanese exploitation film. Why don't we show the Americans? Why don't we, you know, guys who are hardcore into this stuff, who write about it, who are very analytical about it, go, hey, we're going to show you this stuff. And they started doing film festivals and showing these films, and they got some releases. Right, this film, um, Star of David, Hunting Beautiful Girls, Saul Jack the Ripper, Watcher in the Attic. A couple other films. A bunch of films actually got released um, through that era. But it's just, it's kind of weighing down again. And I wish that nowadays, since we're all stuck in our houses, you would go out and find yourself. Yes, I know no, it was like, oh, I don't want to watch something on X-Film, but you can find it other places. There are plenty of places online you could find a good copy of this film. It's rough, though. Don't expect to, to get the family around and be like, all right, let's watch this movie, A Wife to be Sacrificed. And expect the kids to cry, but especially when they first see that rape scene, it's gonna just—it's gonna break somebody's heart. Don't watch this with your girlfriend, and she's not into rape. <laughs> Don't make her find you watching it. Ugh. I liked it though. So, um, yeah, I'll round this up. Uh, my name is Juan. My podcast is motionpixmaster.wordpress.com. That's the website. Check it out if you want. Derek, again, thank you for letting me do this. Now, everybody. On with the show. Oh! <laughs> Hi! I'm Angelique. There's nothing better at the end of a long day than a hot bath and a good book. Now, I'm not talking your highfalutin literature like your your Jane Eyre or your Wuthering Heights. I'm talking candy bars for your brain. The kind of books you'll find gathering dust at the Bilo or your local used bookstore. 
books about monsters, ghosts, demons, werewolves, draculas, killers, surgical abominations, or just about any other horror you can dream up. So, plug the drain, grab you a book, and come soak with me in the tub of terror. Hi, everyone. Glad you're back in the bath with me. It's good to be here. Tonight, we're soaking with Blood Child by Andrew Niederman. And this has another one of those brilliant embossed covers that I love so much. I just, I love running my fingers across the raised letters. And, you know, when you're reading the book, you can feel the pictures. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> and this one makes no bones about the plot either. There's a big ass baby Dracula on the cover with his little fangs hanging out. And he's being held by his mama and she's got two bite marks on her neck. You know, I saw this sold. <laughs> so, let's find out. Is Blood Child just ducky? Or is it a total bath bomb? We open in a hospital delivery room where Dana Hamilton is giving birth. Sadly, the baby dies, but her husband Harlan is approached by some strange lawyer in the hallway at the hospital who knows what's happened. And he's like, hey, we got a newborn baby that needs a family. But you can only have this baby if Dana breastfeeds it. Like, that's the deal breaker right there. She has to breastfeed. And so they basically... Pinky swear that they're going to breastfeed this baby. Breastfeeding is a constant in this book. Like, that's pretty much all Dana does, aside from flip out on everybody, but I'll get to that. Um, they make it really gross, I guess. <laughs> anyway, they take the baby, and immediately Dana's different. She's like bonded with this baby. She's very possessive of it. She even changes the baby's name to Nikos, which is an odd name for a baby with carrot red hair, as they make a point of mentioning a lot, um, just like his daddy. But I guess it's really not his daddy. Okay, so they make a big deal about the baby kind of looking like them and looking like it could have been their child. But yeah, that's just another little, little spice they threw on the story. <laughs> but Dana started bursting into rages. Um, she won't let anybody touch the baby. And the baby itself is a weirdo. Um, seems way too perceptive. And it sleeps all day. And it feeds all night. Suspicious. No? <laughs> well, Dana and Harlan also take care of Harlan's little sister, Colleen. She's a bright and talented teenager. She's dating the high school quarterback. She doesn't like the baby at all. It's creepy to her. She catches Dana acting weird. Dana flips out on her. And Colleen just is like, well, I'll just keep my distance. 
Dana's mom, Jillian, comes to help out and is deeply concerned about her daughter because she won't let anybody near Nikos, not grandma, not daddy, not no one. Um, Jillian accidentally wakes the baby up and Dana acts like she's about to attack her. Also, Nikos won't let anybody hold him except Dana. He flips out. I mean, literally, there's so many freakouts in this book. Everybody's freaking out all over the place. But nobody seems to care enough to really question anything that's going on. Until Dana starts looking really pale and eating raw and bloody meat. Harlan wants her to go see their doctor. But Dana has made an appointment with a new doctor. Dr. Claret. Now seriously, I have to give the author some cool points here because Claret is slang for blood. You know me, I love my wordplay. You see where this is going? <laughs> so, Colleen's best friend, Audra, wears a giant silver cross all the time. And she comes over to the house to meet the new baby. And as soon as the baby lays eyes on that big old cross, he has a baby Dracula freak out. His face contorts and he starts screaming and Dana has to run him upstairs. And, uh, yeah. So Audra's confused. Colleen's like, something fishy's going on, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Well, anytime she does say anything about anything weird, she gets basically fussed at, so she's just kind of like, eh, whatevs. Now, this whole time, nobody has had a serious conversation about the loss of their child. There is so much unresolved trauma in this book, and frankly, this book is an exercise in repression, for the most part. So what they've done is they've set up Colleen to look like a complete nutcase. You know, she's been the one noticing all the weird stuff. Uh, Dana walking around in the dark, talking to people that aren't there, treating the baby like it's gold, um, sleeping all day, drawing all the curtains in the house. You know, typical Dracula behavior. But nobody believes her. She's even seen a drop of blood on the baby's lips. Said he looks up. She's seen bloody uh, stains in the crib. And she finds Jillian in the shed, drained like a Capri Sun. But when she runs and they call the cops and they go back, she's not there. But they can't help but notice that Jillian is missing. Um, Dana really doesn't seem to care at all that her mom's just gone. She says that they had a fight. Mm. That same evening, a pale stranger appears on the doorstep. She's wearing a tight-ass nurse's uniform and a big red cloak, and she announces that Dr. Claret sent her to help care for Dana. And she'll be living there. What? <laughs> I mean, this house is just getting overrun by Draculas. Bats are flying around. Necks are getting chomped. And people are getting flattened like otter pops. Now, Harlan, 
he's just kind of do 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 oh nothing weird here oh nothing i can do anything about la 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 i'm just gonna keep on going with my life he needs to snap out of it and get his house in order he just refuses to admit that anything off is going on it's just it's infuriating really so our mystery nurse whose name and i kid you not her name is rose patio seriously it's ugh she insists that Dana not be disturbed at all in any form or fashion because of her great emotional strain. And she's got to breastfeed the baby with her breast to feed the baby with her breast. There's a lot of breast talk. There's a lot of nipple talk. Things coming out of nipples, you know. Yeah, that's what they're for. But... This Niederman just kind of makes it gross. <laughs> now, the nurse, of course, is oozing with that raw Dracula allure. And Harlan can't keep his eyes off her gazungas. And he's a big, fancy college lit professor. And he uses Macbeth to put all of this stuff out of his mind, just basically using it to justify the thought that Colleen is just a complete nutcase and don't listen to her. And he hasn't spent five minutes with this child since they brought it home from the hospital. Literally, he hasn't even touched the kid. He's barely spoken three sentences to his wife. I mean, honestly, she's preoccupied with, you know, the little suckling creature of the night that she's got to take care of. But still, you know, they've gone through some major, major crap. <laughs> and just, no, no, don't worry about it. It's okay. So, of course, it takes him about five minutes before he is seduced by the vampire nurse. She serves him some exotic wine with dinner and, you know, has her Dracula away with him. She bites him. So Colleen is convinced by the hospital psychiatrist that she has indeed been hysterical um, and gets released, but not before her ultra-religious best friend, Audra, comes to see her and gives her her giant cross, which is very sweet. But I think you know where this is going. Now, Nikos is growing at an alarming rate. He's basically doing a reverse Benjamin Button. And the Thirsty Dead is just flying around everywhere, sucking on any neck they can find. Dogs. And they get Audra, which is sad. She was, she was a good character. I liked her a lot. And Colleen is just going full-on Scooby-Doo now at this point. Nobody believes her, so she's going to fix it. She's going to solve it herself. Lo and behold, she discovers, of course, that Dr. Clara is a vampire. <laughs> there are two other vampires who go unnamed, uh, but are obviously the parents of the vampire baby. And she witnesses them 
holding Dana down because they had gone to theirs under the auspices of having a doctor's appointment and uh, Colleen, you know, going full on Scooby-Doo, followed him, witnessed it, freaked out. And on her way to go get the proper authorities, who, by the way, have just kind of been useless the whole time because <laughs> they think this poor little girl is crazy. Uh, she gets attacked by Jillian who is now a vampire. But Colleen dispatches her quickly with liberal application of the Holy Cross of Jesus. Yes, Lord. She turns into a teenage Peter Vincent, basically. Uh, Cops still don't believe her because every time she tries to show them some evidence, it's gone because vampires are shady mofos. (laughs) Uh, But she goes on back herself and finds them and uses the cross to wipe them out. Basically turns them into slush puppies in their coffins, which is pretty cool. The the Dracula death scenes are nice. Uh, But Rose and Nikos evaporate into the night. So maybe this is a, a series? I don't know. I'll have to do a little digging to see if there's a uh, follow-up to Blood Child. Maybe Blood Adolescent. <laughs> but I thought, you know, with vampires, it's a rule. You know, you're whatever age you are when you're turned forever. But then again, with this, did Vampire Mommy and Vampire Daddy make a vampire baby is it a biologically birthed vampire how would that be possible I don't know it's something I'm going to have to think on but I don't think it's possible so did some rando vampire turn a mommy daddy and baby hmm. I don't know I'm going to give you something to think about so like I said I'll look into it and see if this is a series. (laughs) If I do find a a prepubescent vampire novel, I'll be mildly shocked and kind of (laughs) intrigued. Well, let's find out. Is this bastard child of the Omen and Salem's Lot just ducky or a total bath bomb? I gotta be honest with you, because I will never lie to you about my opinion. It's a bath bomb. There was a lot of potential, and this could have done, I think, what the author honestly intended. But when it takes over half the book to get to some real horror, eh, I wish that they would have focused on the scary baby vampire instead of making breastfeeding gross and sexual and really the only constant thing in the book like there's not a chapter that goes by there's literally almost not even a page that goes by without the words breastfeed or breastfeeding in it which I mean if you're into boobs you know I don't even think you'd enjoy it I mean, I have them, and I was like, ah, chill out on that. You know, was this written by La Leche? 
<sighs> I'm just gonna lean back and relax and let this one just fizz away. Well, my water's getting chilly and my fingers are all pruney, so I'm gonna drain my water here. And I hope that you'll come hang out in the tub with me again for our next episode. Same bath time, same bath channel. You are listening to Astro Radio Z. And I said, hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. Howdy, Astro Zombies, and welcome back to some old devil shit. A spinoff of the greatest podcast about occultism in film ever produced, Ritual Light and Sound. I'm your host, Evan Dean Shelton. Here at Some Old Devil Shit, I talk about satanic films. Some films are overtly satanic, some not so much. Some are horror films, some aren't. In my last segment here on Astro Radio Z, I talked about a Herschel Gordon Lewis film from 1968 called She Devils on Wheels. Not a horror film. Not what I would call overtly satanic. For this installment of Some Old Devil Shit, we're going hard in the other direction with a flick by Sean Byrne from 2015 called The Devil's Candy. This is a horror film. It is most definitely what I would call overtly satanic, though not what I would call accurately satanic. She Devils on Wheels is much more accurately satanic. Refer to episode 140 of Astro Radio Z if you want to hear that. That's the subspecies episode. Accuracy aside, what we do get in The Devil's Candy is a modern heavy metal horror film, and one that takes itself seriously. So, throw on your Sun-O hoodie and your vinyl copy of Ride the Lightning and let's fucking thrash Astro Zombies. The Devil's Candy opens with a creepy, unhinged-looking middle-aged white dude waking up in the middle of the night, hearing a strange voice. This voice is a growly, metal-sounding dude chanting strangely. Sounds very much like an ambient track from a ritual noise or black metal band. Probably a lot creepier if you don't listen to and or create music like this. So dude gets out of bed, clearly perturbed by this weird voice. He throws on a red flying V guitar, plugs it into a little Marshall combo amp, cranks it, and starts dropping a fucking killer hypnotic doom riff. If you're hip... When you hear this goddamn riff, right off the bat, you're going to be like, this sounds like Sunno. And one of the coolest parts of this movie is that you're right, you fucking cool-ass weirdo, that is Sunno. The whole original score is done by Sunno. So, old dude is standing there, swaying hypnotically in the dark, dropping this huge, repetitive doom riff, and presumably drowning out the creepy voice he was hearing because it is now gone. This old lady walks in, freaking out that this guy is going full live at Vakken in her house in the middle of the night. We get the sense that this old lady is the weird middle-aged guy's mom. He stops dooming, the voice comes back, he kills the old lady with the flying V. The opening credits drop with more metal. Now, none of this is done with a sense of humor, no matter how it may sound with me describing it to you. This ain't trick-or-treat or black roses or deathgasm. This shit is played straight and grim. So then we get the rest of the story. Good old Ethan Embry is rocking long hair and a beard and is fucking jacked and shirtless a lot, which is awesome. 
He's our cool metal dad. Then we have mom and metal daughter. So we have a metal family. Cool metal family moves into the house where years ago in the prologue, creepy middle-aged guy killed his mom with the flying V after hearing the devil voice. Jacked bearded metal dad is also an artist, hence all the time spent shirtless and sweaty in the studio painting. Metal Dad starts hearing the creepy voice, going into fugue states, and painting what appear to be massive, fucking, incredible, avant-garde, black metal album covers. The actual artist's name is Steven Kasner from Brooklyn, if you want to look him up. At this point, you're thinking you're going to get a satanic, supernatural horror flick, but then you see that the weird middle-aged guy with the flying V is still around, and is dangerous. Movie takes a left turn and becomes kind of a stalker slash home invasion movie, and the supernatural element is kept subdued, perhaps even subtle, other than all the cheese dick Satan imagery and all the metal jams on the soundtrack. A lot of the movie centers around the metal daughter being in danger, and there are some incredibly tense sequences with her and the creepy guy. Turns out the creepy guy has been chopping up kids for years and burying them in tiny suitcases out in a field, at the prompting of the voice of Satan, presumably. I don't want to spoil things, so I'll leave the plot there for the most part, but here's where I stand on this film, just as a piece of entertainment. I thought it was pretty damn cool. Not necessarily well written or innovative or anything, but it's stylishly shot, and the acting and casting are really strong, way better than they even needed to be. In fact, I think the really strong acting is what kept me engaged for the most part, that and the killer metal soundtrack. It was fucking cool to see Ethan Embry, I've just always been a fan of the guy, and uh, to see him in something like this that's right up my alley and see him fucking crushing it in performance and to see that he got so fucking ripped for the role, uh, to me, goes a long way towards selling this thing. What I like most about the movie, though, is the fact that it's a metal movie that takes itself seriously. I dig a horror comedy from time to time, but for the most part, I am a horror fan because I want to be frightened or disturbed, not to yuck it up at gore gags and have a good fucking time. Fuck having a good time. No mosh, no scene, no core, no fun. But I digress. I dig that this, as a metal movie, doesn't have to be goofy. It's a serious story about a charming and believable family, and the whole soundtrack is fucking metal. Good metal, too. No fucking Slipknot or Lamb of God. We're talking old-school Metallica and Slayer, Sun-O, and the newer stuff like Stoner Doom, Badasses from Phoenix, Goya. Check out Goya, ladies and gents, and those outside the binary. To me, this overall package is a good time. You got a jacked shirtless dude, death by flying V, a cool metal kid, great music, tight suspense, some wild ass violence, and an underlying sense of dread. Which brings me to this. The devil as a horror concept is rapidly losing its effectiveness on audiences, I feel, and with good reason. Satan is a huge concept, a myth that has been with us since well before Christianity the horned god. Before Rome decided to edit together their supercut of various scenes from various religious texts all over North Africa and West Asia into a hateful authoritarian shitpile they call the Holy Bible, we as humans already knew the horned god. The horned god has been with us in the wild and dark places of this world for as far back as we can remember, which is why the symbolism has such power, no matter your personal beliefs or feelings. The layman tends to translate that power, that feeling of gravitas, into fear, though. Fear twists that feeling of power into the threat of danger, and then morality processes that feeling of danger as a source of other, of evil. 
But morality is a construct, y'all. The horned god does not exist within the parameters of the concept of morality. Neither do we. As an occult practitioner and someone who venerates the devil, stories like this are a real mixed bag. I enjoy them for what they are, but the threat doesn't necessarily register as a threat to me. My personal thoughts on the concept of Satan are so far removed from the idea of Satan being some lecherous, evil presence that gets off on inspiring people to chop up kids that it's almost laughable to me. I have to whip out the big guns of disbelief suspension to remain engaged with stories like this, because to me, the Horned God is an ancient and inspiring figure that represents our connection to the wild, to nature, to our dim, forgotten past as a species. This concept is a source of true reverence in my life, and to see it used as the impetus for child killings and other heinous horror story shit is a little annoying. But here's the trick. As I mentioned earlier, the reason that satanic imagery carries weight is because it is so old. Our ancestors, going back farther than you might believe, were inundated with this imagery. We've known about the horned god of the wild for thousands of years. That's something that's genetic at this point. So when we see that imagery, we feel something. We feel a stirring in our subconscious. How we process that is up to our individual lens that we've developed through culture, education, upbringing, etc. But we all feel it. And in this sense, a certain fear and trepidation are appropriate. It is right to feel danger in the presence of such a spiritual entity. A being like this should inspire reverence, awe, and devotion. This is why Satan was adopted as the deity of metal. Lucifer was the great rebel, the original outsider. Only makes sense that he became the grand symbol for this artistic movement and form of expression. The devil stands as the bouncer to our metalhead party, making sure the posers who are easily turned away are turned away, to fuck off back to whatever lame shit they were up to before they smelled the weed and heard the blast beads coming from our place. And this is why I don't mind the devil being portrayed this way. The devil is powerful. Power is scary. And the fearful and spineless aren't invited to my fireside rituals in the dark forest. There will be Acherontis and Miller High Life, and those scared dorks will be missing out on some good times. Check out the Devil's Candy, y'all. Thanks for listening to Astro Radio Z and some old devil shit. Shout out to Angelique Bone and Daniel Edenfield, my fellow southern weirdos. If you liked this, check out my longer, even more culty and weird show, Ritual Light and Sound, available wherever podcasts are. Catch you next time, Astro Zombies. And I said, hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. Thank you for listening to Astro Radio Z. Astro Radio Z 142 was caught finger blasting a sardine can while hacking into the grid, became straight savage, and then was produced and edited by Derek Carey, Angelique Bone, Von Colmeyer, Evan Shelton, and Daniel Edenfield. For more information, and to talk to the hosts online, join the All The Gimmicks Facebook group, and slash or find us on Twitter at Astro Radio Z. Music played on this episode, which we urge you to go purchase and support can be purchased through the supporting links provided in the show notes. Jizzy Pearl, Hit and Miss. Roger Dexter, Booty Flavor, Not Working. Zombie, Metaverse. Paradise Lost, 
Fall from Grace. If you would like to hear more than your regular releases of Astro Radio Z, go over to our Patreon page. For the low price of $1 a month, you will receive monthly bonus episodes and much more. Check out what we have to offer and join us for the ultimate ARZ experience at patreon.com forward slash Astro Radio Z. Enjoy the remaining moments of your mortal existence, Astro Zombies. Astro Radio Z will return next month, from the bowels of hell to your blown out speakers. Fried chicken, a blanket under the stars, and red wine. What did I do to deserve this? You being you is all I need. Is that really all you need? You just keep drinking that wine, and we'll see what else I need. <laughs> You're too much. Oh, Shelly. Oh, Bobby. Shelly. <laughs> Oh, Bobby. I'm gonna hand job you so good. How good? So good. Wait. Oh, Bobby. What if somebody comes by? You know I hand job really good, baby. They won't have time. Oh. Oh, oh, you got the best hand skin around, Shelly. What was that? Probably a raccoon. Are they venomous? I don't think so. If they're a hand job like that, I gotta take a piss. I'll be right back. Okay, Bobby. Oh, and Shelly. Yeah, Bobby? Maybe when I come back. Yeah? I can finger you so good. Oh, Bobby, you're so romantic. <laughs>